it really is striking to me how difficult Christianity has been made by so many when the simple message is simply come to me and rest. Stop working. Stop trying. I did it all. Isn't that wonderful? You're just called to rest in that. You can't add anything to it. So then the motivation for you simply becomes the fact that you love him, that you revel in the wonder of the fact that you've been saved and allowed to rest in a Savior like that. And so out of gratitude, out of a heart filled with compassion, you serve him. You look for ways to live for him and to love him and to extend yourself into the lives of others. This is why we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves and to be engaged with people that way because we have been loved so deeply and so immeasurably. It's a beautiful song, and the songs we sang this morning drive us into that mindset and help us keep us our minds focused on where they ought to be on Jesus Christ. And I trust that you're doing that, and I hope if you're thinking about things that you want to achieve in the new year, that one of them is that you'll stop trying to be so self-righteous and work your way into heaven. And that you can rest. We all like to rest. Who doesn't like to rest? We all like a good nap? Well, you get to rest in Jesus Christ. He's done all the work, and we can't add anything to it other than our praise. Well, it's time for a change. Can you believe it? I heard, I think it was maybe Zach and Derek in the back were taking wagers on the over-under on how long it's going to take me <laughs> to get through the book of Philemon. There's 25 verses. Is it going to take 25 months? It might. No. I'm going to basically break this into four parts, three parts perhaps, and, and so over the next three to four weeks, we'll, Lord willing, get through this really unique little letter, um, something that's very intriguing. So we'll go to the Lord in prayer, then we'll read it, and we'll begin to unpackage what it means. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the fact that we can rest in your finished work. Thank you for those reminders. We praise you that you are the great I am. We praise you that uh, you have ordained all things and that all things are in your control, that we can be still and know that you are God, that we can rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, which you have given over to us graciously, mercifully, and in a way that's so abundant, it's, hard to dif it's difficult to comprehend. Forgive us for our wanderings into our own self-righteousness, our own self-worth. Forgive us for our pride and our arrogance in that way. Forgive us for not resting in the finished work of Christ as we ought to. Help us to do better in that way, Lord. Help us to be mindful that you love us with a love that is immeasurable, that you are gracious to us in a way that is incomprehensible. You forgive our sins. You put them away. You don't remember them. Thank you for that. Help us to be mindful of our sin. Help us to be quick to confess it. Help us to not relish in it or seek pleasure in it. That's an easy thing for us to do. Satan is crafty that way. Forgive us for those types of wanderings. Help us to be focused this morning on your word, and thank you for this short little letter that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul penned to his dear friend Philemon. May we glean from it what you have intended. May our time in it cause us to love you more, love each other more, and see more clearly what you have planned for the church. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of your church. May you be pleased with our worship this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Philemon, let's go ahead and read the entire book. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, 
because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not, want you, did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus greets you. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Well, here you have this intriguing letter by Paul to his friend Philemon. It only made sense, I believe, to move into this short little letter after having spent so much time in Colossians. We became familiar with um, Onesimus in the book of Colossians, and we're going to become more familiar with him here in this letter to Philemon, and we'll also get to understand and know Philemon a little bit better as well. It's intriguing to me that through the ages, this short little epistle has been preserved, a personal letter, if you will, from Paul to a dear friend, Philemon. It's intriguing to me that this would have been kept because when you read it, you're kind of like, well, how is this applicable to me or to the church? What could its meaning be? How does it work for us in these modern times? It's, to many people, an offensive letter. There are many churches who will not preach it. There are many churches who will not even read it because they say it's insensitive to the plight of Onesimus and is forcing someone back into a state of servitude and therefore is not up to snuff with contemporary standards and concerns. Many modern theologians have gone to great lengths to undermine it. Some have even questioned its authenticity, saying that this was just the ramblings of Paul at a point in time in his life when he was desperate and sick and lonely, and these are really truly not the words of God. They could not be. Certainly, certainly an apostle would not send someone back to be a slave. It's quite intriguing. And how appropriate for the age in which we live when we have become consumed with that very issue Issues of racism and other issues attendant with it have permeated the church, and unfortunately, the message has been co-opted by those who now have taken up the mantra of those who claim that we're inherently racist. If you're white, you're always going to be racist. The Christians are racist. Paul was a racist, etc., etc. And that there is no answer to the issue we have to in the Bible. That rather we have to engage in a lot of other types of things. We have to engage in other types of programs and political constructs and messages and movements in order to fix what's so wrong with the church, what's so wrong with people. What I think we'll find intriguing in the book of Philemon is the fact that the focus is ultimately the impact of the gospel on the heart of Onesimus, Philemon, 
and the church in Colossae. Ultimately, what we're going to find in the book of Philemon is that it's about the impact and the significance and the wonder of a Christian fellowship, a body of believers who come together in what would appear to be a seemingly difficult situation, working together for the glory of Christ under the power of the gospel and transforming their lives in that context, not allowing what would perhaps appear to be something that is culturally difficult not looking to a political solution, a social solution, but rather a gospel solution. A gospel solution that allows two people to live out the reality of their faith in real time, in front of real people, in a real place, in a real time. It's interesting to me that Paul at no point in time necessarily even openly condemns the idea of slavery. He understands that in the cultural context in which they were living, that slavery was accepted and was the norm. As I've communicated to you before, nearly two-thirds of the world's population was enslaved in some context. Slavery was difficult and challenging. It was not easy. Life as a slave was demeaning, hard, burdensome, challenging. Slaves had no legal rights. They were property. They had no ability to challenge, to to, to do anything. If you disobeyed, you could be killed. And one of the striking things here is that in the context of the laws in which they were written at this point in time, Philemon would have had the right to severely punish Onesimus, even to the point of death. As we'll find out, Onesimus was ultimately accused of having stolen from Philemon and fled. And by God's providence... He ends up in Rome. This is unbelievable. Honestly, this story is quite remarkable. If you don't find this compelling, I'm not sure what other other thing I could tell you. But here's here's Onesimus with Philemon in Colossae as a slave, steals from him, flees, ends up in Rome. By God's providence, gets connected with Paul and Epaphras. They witness to him. God saves him, changes his heart, Paul writes these letters, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, perhaps Philippians, gives these letters to Onesimus and and, and, and Tacitus, and and they take him back. He, He takes the letter back. Onesimus does. The letter is read to the church. Here's poor Onesimus. People are probably in shock that he even shows up. What are you doing? You came back? He could kill you. And there he is in the church while this letter is read. Now, it's interesting, too, that the letter is very direct. Paul directs the letter to Philemon. We're going to find that in the grammar and the structure of the letter that this is directed at Philemon. Philemon is the focus. Onesimus is part of it, but really Paul's writing to Philemon and saying to Philemon, I want you to handle this in a manner that is glorifying to Christ and demonstrates the power of the gospel. And church, I want you to help him do that. I want you to be part of that. And so as we unpackage this, there's some things that we need to be mindful of and to remember Ultimately, what we're finding in the book of Philemon is that it is a living, real-time example of what Paul wrote in Colossians 3.11. Let's go back to Colossians. Believe it or not, some of you are saying, are you really going to do that? Yes, I am. Back to Colossians, because ultimately, you know, the mindset that Paul has, of course, in what he's communicated in Colossians, he's anticipating that Onesimus and, and Philemon and those in the church in, in Colossae are going to receive and understand his instructions in light of what he's already taught them in the book of Colossians or what they will ultimately be taught. I'm not certain of which order of these letters were read, but ultimately the principles that are found in Colossians are applicable to the situation that's facing Philemon and Onesimus and the church regarding that particular issue. So let's be mindful of what Paul wrote before 
Verse 9 of Colossians 3, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And this is important, look at this, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, and what? Slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. Paul then would write, as we well know, from verse 12 to 17, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And so it's interesting to me that Paul's approach to an issue that is is socially distasteful in the context of how we live today and and, and addressing this particular issue and problem within the church, he takes them back to who they are in Jesus Christ. We talked about this before, that it's interesting that if we somehow turn the slave passages in the Bible into HR guidelines now, we lose the punch. We really lose the meaning of it. This is not a model for an employee handbook. This is the Word of God, and it's addressing what is obviously a very, very challenging social construct, that is slavery. And the thing that transforms that ultimately is the gospel, not a social program, not BLM, not social justice, not CRT, none of those things. Fix it or correct it. It's a gospel issue. Paul reminds Philemon in Colossians 3.11, that there are, in the eyes of Christ, no slave or free. And that as the elect of God, as one of his redeemed, there's an anticipation that his response to his now brother Onesimus is going to be driven not by the social construct in which they find themselves that permits Philemon to do a certain thing or assert certain legal rights, but rather to respond with a heart that has been transformed by the gospel. That's significant. And he anticipates the church is going to do the same. And I think ultimately, as we kind of summarize the message of Philemon as a means of introduction, we can make application to what we're going to learn here to the life of the church itself. The story of this runaway slave, now himself a man of faith in Christ, returning to his Christian master in Colossae, is about the real and practical power of the fellowship of faith in Jesus Christ to transform the most difficult of situations between people. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Don't gloss Philemon. Don't think, well, that doesn't apply to me. There's no way. We don't have slaves. No one's a slave owner. No one's a slave. This doesn't even apply to us. It's not appropriate to even talk about it. Move on, pastor. There's nothing here for us. And let's just just tear it out. No, but there's a lot here. And I want you to think about this for a minute. I want you to make certain that in your minds you're thinking about this particular issue, about the fact that the book of Philemon is about the real and practical power of the fellowship of faith in Jesus Christ to transform the most difficult of situations between people. Did you hear what I said? The most, it has the ability to transform the most difficult of situations between people. There's conflict in the church, we know that, that happens. And I think we're too quick to give up in trying to rectify and to resolve those things. And what ultimately Paul is saying to Philemon and to the church in Colossae, you are going to resolve and you are going to approach this issue in the power of the gospel. 
and you're going to glorify Christ in the means and in the manner by which you deal with this difficult issue. Now, interestingly enough, we're going to find that Paul does not assert his rights as an apostle to just beat Philemon over the head and say, do it. He appeals to him. He even says, I'm an old man. Listen to me on that basis. I'm your friend. Listen to me on that basis. I'm appe- just please do this to demonstrate to me that the gospel is real in your life. That it's real. And so, friends, as a church and as your pastor, I want us to be mindful of the fact that while Philemon, the book itself, might be dealing with this particular issue in that church, that issue of Philemon and his slave Onesimus, there are other issues that come into church that we ought to be applying the gospel to and that our fellowship, one of the koinonias, we're going to find that worded here, the one another's of the gospel is to demonstrate the reality of it by the means and manner that we resolve conflicts within the church. That's part of the fellowship. Fellowship just isn't having people over for pizza and crackers which I've now come to love very much. There's a certain person in this church, I won't mention any name, Don Roberts, but she makes amazing crackers. <laughs> Those are things that we enjoy as a church together, but there is something more about the fellowship of the saints that goes beyond just eating together. It is the idea that you and I come together in the power of the gospel to resolve things within the church, that we don't give up on each other in that context, that we don't lose hope or lose sight of the power of the gospel to change people. It's sad to me. It's troubling to me. That the the world often sees the church as a place of conflict. You've heard this, have you not? All they do over there is fight. Always bickering, always arguing. Bunch of hypocrites. That's what people think of the church. Why is that? It's because we're not doing what we're called to do. And so Paul's appeal to Philemon is to live in the power of the gospel, even through the most difficult of circumstances. That's what's going on here. Let's not lose sight of that. Unfortunately and sadly, relationships even between Christians are easily dominated by wrongs that have been done. People often treat one another and regard one another in the light of past hurts or injuries. Rejection, resentment, and distrust or shame, embarrassment, and insecurity can govern these relationships. What could happen if these difficult relationships are renewed by shared faith in Jesus Christ, becoming the dominant factor rather than the hurt? That's, that's, that's amazing. That's what this little book is about. It's the idea of living not in the context of our rejection, our resentment and distrust or shame, embarrassment or insecurity, but rather resolving those things based upon our faith in Jesus Christ, which becomes the dominant factor. I think it was shameful for the church to do what it did in the recent past with respect to all of the issues regarding race and those things. Where was the gospel in that? Churches having kneel-ins and doing BLM marches and all sorts of things, the virtue signal that we're good people, we get the message. How about the gospel for Pete's sake? How about living in the power of the gospel to deal with racism and attitudes towards people? How about talking to people in the context of that dynamic as opposed to becoming politicized to the point of becoming irrelevant and absurd and missing a great opportunity to be salt and light? Philemon stands for the proposition of what can happen when these types of difficult relationships are renewed by shared faith in Jesus Christ. 
That is when the fellowship in the faith becomes effective. And this is ultimately what Paul would pray for with respect to Philemon and Onesimus. So friends, I don't want you to forget that. I I don't want you to so isolate and eisegete, that is to to only interpret this book in the context of of its setting, that it's only applicable to an issue when a slave comes back to a church. That's not going to happen at Community Bible Church. Guarantee it. If I can guarantee anything, it's that. But what I can guarantee is that this is a church full of people who are sinners, saved by grace, and that Satan is at work to disrupt and destroy, and there's going to be conflict. And the question that becomes then is this, how will we resolve those types of issues and conflicts? Where will we go to resolve them? How will we do it? Are we going to do it in the context of the fellowship that we have together in the faith? Or are we going to do something else? So this short little letter of Philemon stands for the proposition and support of the proposition that conflict ought to be resolved in light of the gospel, not otherwise, not otherwise. And so keep that in mind as we work through this little letter. Now, let's get into the passage. Paul, it says. Now, we all know Paul. He needs no introduction, but I'm going to give one anyway. We know that Paul's in prison, and he's there with Epaphras and some others. We know from the book of Colossians that there were those who were there who were helping him. Onesimus is apparently there as well, and in some way assisting Paul. We'll find out more about that as we get into the letter. But Paul is in prison, and he's writing these letters. He's concerned, of course, by what he's heard from Epaphras. Perhaps Epaphras has shared with him some details about what happened between Philemon and Onesimus. Perhaps Onesimus himself has communicated what, is, what, what happened and what went on. Clearly, clearly Paul has an understanding of the, of the inner workings of the church in Colossae. He, he knows a lot of things about them. He knows there's a false teacher there. He knows that there's conflict between Philemon and Onesimus. He knows that the church has slave owners and those who are slaves. And so he's dealing with those issues. So Paul, it says, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. Let's think about that for a moment. It is intriguing to me that Paul does not say that he's a prisoner of Rome, which he was. He's incarcerated. He's in prison. He can't leave. Now, he can get visitors and stuff, but he can't leave. And in a couple of years from when this was written, he's going to get beheaded but with a sword. And so it's interesting to me that Paul communicates something that's significant. He says that he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means he's exactly where God wants him to be. And that for him to be effective... In the context of God's plans, he needed to be there. And so Paul does not see himself as a victim, but rather as a servant. He could claim his victimhood, couldn't he? He could have written paragraphs about this. Oh, the food is terrible. I want you. I mean, he, 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 you know, think he was, he was talking about, he could talk about the fact that he was being probably beaten up. The food's bad. It's cold. It's damp. I, you know, I don't have all the writing supplies that I want or would like to have. I can't leave when I want to. I don't feel good. Obviously, there's some issue there because Luke is there with him as well at some point, probably helping him with physical, medical issues. But Paul doesn't talk about that. Paul doesn't say anything about his personal condition other than the fact that I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So what he's saying right out of the gate to Philemon, to the rest of the people there in the church at Colossae, I am exactly where God wants me to be. I am doing his work where he wants it done and how he wants it done. Would he like to leave? Yeah, most likely he would. 
And I think he anticipated that he would leave. It's evident based upon the content of the letter. He tells Philemon, oh, by the way, get a room ready for me. I'm coming. I'm going to be there. So his plan was to leave. God's plan was to keep him there, and he did. And so Paul did not see himself as a victim, did not see himself as a, you know, experiencing bad luck or just, you know, his fate was not good. No, he saw himself exactly where he was supposed to be, that he is a prisoner, not of Rome, not of Nero, not of Caesar, not of anybody else, but he's exactly where the Lord wants him. So he uses that as an occasion to do something, and that is to write this letter. That's significant, and so we don't want to lose sight of that. We also find out that Timothy is there. Timothy is there with him, as we find out as well in the book of Colossians. We don't know exactly what Timothy's role was. He was there to probably encourage and to help Paul in some way, to help carry on ministry, to communicate with believers in the churches that had been planted, to perhaps even act as his secretary in some way and write these letters down for him. Although some of these, he notes, were written in his own hand, as we'll find. So let's not keep that in Let's not forget about that. That, that. that dynamic is very important. It's important for us. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And Timothy, our brother. Now, it says, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker. Now, what do we know about Philemon? Well, apparently Philemon was wealthy because typically it was only the wealthy who owned slaves, who had slaves. So he had a household where there were servants and slaves. Perhaps he had a farm. We don't know exactly, but Onesimus was one of his slaves. We don't understand necessarily how he treated people or what was going on. Our assumption is that because he was a believer that he was Um, a good master in that context, but nonetheless, he was. That's what he was. We understood then that ultimately Onesimus will flee and leave with some of his money and, and take off. But we do know this. He says to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker. So he's involved in the ministry at Colossae. It's believed that Philemon met Paul in Ephesus and was saved through Paul's ministry there in Ephesus and went back to Colossae like Epaphras did. And so Paul had an influence, a great influence, obviously, on the folks who then ultimately would form and start the church in Philemon's house. That's where the church met, which was common back in that time. And so Philemon is a Christian. That's important for us to understand. The letter is written to a Christian brother in Christ. Paul is writing to another believer. And of course, that only makes sense because only the redeemed can understand the word of God. The natural man receives not the things of God, it's foolishness to him. Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians 2.14. So he's writing to a regenerate man, and Paul's anticipation is that he's going to respond as a regenerate man would. That's significant. So he writes to Philemon, who is a believer in Christ and a beloved brother and a, by Paul, considered to be a fellow worker. He's engaged in the ministry. He's engaged in building up the saints in Colossae. He's opened his home. He's welcomed them in. The church meets there. They gather together where these letters would have been read uh, most likely by either, we'll find out, Archippus or perhaps um, others in the church. Um, that would have been involved in this, Tychicus being one of them. And so he's a Christian man whose home has been opened to this church where they're assembled in their meeting. And to, it says in verse 2, and to Aphia, our sister. Most likely this is Philemon's wife. We don't know much about her other than that, but obviously it would make sense for Paul to greet Philemon and his his wife, and it's believed that Archippus is Philemon and Aphia's son. 
He refers to Archippus as a fellow soldier, one who's engaged in the ministry, one who's engaged in the, the battle for the truth, if you will. It's interesting that he refers to him as a soldier. So he's someone who's also engaged with Paul, as were others in the propagation of the gospel, who had been impacted by the message that they had heard through the proclamation of Epaphras, their faithful pastor, and perhaps from his own father, Philemon. And the Lord worked in their life, his life, and saved him, and now he is engaged in the ministry. And then Paul also says, and to the church in your house. And so we do know then from this affirmation that there was a church in Colossae meeting in Philemon's home. So Philemon is obviously a, a well-off, well-to-do, established person within the community in Colossae. We don't know much more about him other than that. Which is significant in terms of what we do know speaks to the idea that um, just because he's wealthy and just because he's well-off and just because the church in his house, he's not going to be treated any differently than anyone else. And you could even say that this letter is in some ways firm. It's kind of quirky and quippy in spots, um, but it's still firm. Paul doesn't pull any punches. And there's an anticipation on Paul's part that Philemon is going to hear what he's saying. They apparently and obviously do know each other from their prior interactions in Ephesus. And so Paul speaks with an open candor that I think is important and significant. So the church hears this as well. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a common salutation on the part of Paul and others in Scripture. The emphasis on God's grace, our desperate need for it, as Paul would communicate in the book of Colossians. The peace that only can come through the finished work of Jesus Christ, as Paul would communicate in Colossians chapter 1. Certainly, these are themes that Paul was reaching into and emphasizing even in his own salutation. And something that we need to be reminded of as well, that there is grace extended to us and that we do have peace, true peace. Not peace in the context of I have everything I want. That's just selfish gratification, which is passing. But this is true peace that never passes away. Reconciliation is what he's speaking to here that I have been reconciled with God by and through the finished work of Jesus Christ, which is also a theme that we saw in Colossians. Paul talked about the fact that even though we were hostile and alienated in our affections toward God and were against him, that in spite of that, God saved us and brought us into fellowship with him and that now we stand before him reconciled through the finished work of Jesus Christ. I'm a trophy of grace. And God accepts me on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not my own goodness. There's nothing good in me. Nothing at all. And so this opening is important for us to comprehend and to understand. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the emphasis on Christ. Looking to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Ultimately, it's almost like an appeal at the beginning to be reminded of Christ. Don't forget about Jesus Christ, that everything I'm going to ask you to do in this letter is based upon what Jesus Christ has done for you. You're at peace with God. Be at peace with Onesimus. Even though you have every legal right to wreck his life and would be justified in so doing, be gracious, be patient, be long-suffering, be gentle, be kind, forgive as you have been forgiven, let peace rule and reign. Remember these words from Colossians chapter 3. Do you see what Paul is doing? There is an anticipation that Christians are going to act that way. I, please, our default is that. I, I, do you hear me? I, no, I'm serious. Do you hear me? Our default is that attitude. These salutations mean things. 
Words have meaning. Paul says, grace to you. Yes, grace has been given to you. Did God save you? Why did he save you? Because you're so handsome? Because you look so good in the morning? Because you're such a nice guy and he didn't kick your cat today? Mary Lynn? Never has kicked a cat in her entire life. I will guarantee that. I stand condemned. But God still saved me. Mom's laughing because she knows about something that we cannot talk about. Mom, don't you ever talk about that. <laughs> don't you ever, ever talk about that. Okay, you blame dad. That's right. I was under the influence of an adult. So we'll leave it there. But grace to you. Peace to you. Now, because of that, I anticipate that your default response to Onesimus is going to be what I've instructed you and what I've taught you. You're going to forgive because you've been forgiven. You're going to be at peace because you're at peace. You're going to demonstrate the virtues that only the elect can demonstrate. And bear in mind, Christ is all and in all. Therefore, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew and free and slave. Wow. So, with that mindset, we look at Paul's statements about his own prayers, about the situation. And this is interesting. Now, I want you to think about something, too, because this is intriguing. This is somewhat speculative, but we understand that these letters were read to these congregations by the pastor. So the available evidence to us is that the letter to Philemon was brought to Colossae along with the longer letter known as Colossians that was addressed to all the Christians generally within the church and was to deal with an issue regarding the false teacher that had arisen within that church. It was a treatise on the, on, on the work in person of Jesus Christ. It's very Christological in its form and foundation. And I can only imagine the day in which the believers gathered together in where? Philemon's house. To hear that letter to the church generally and also the letter that Paul had written to Philemon. Perhaps read by his own son. Or by Tychicus. Perhaps at the conclusion of reading the longer letter, Tychicus would say, Brothers, I do have another matter that needs to be addressed. There's a letter from Paul that he wants you all to hear. It's brief, but it's important. Oops. Perhaps the assembly waits in silence and Tychicus begins to read verses 1 through 3, and he keeps reading, but now there was a change of tone. And, and we miss it in the English, but in the original Greek text, the word you, wherever it occurs from verse 4 onward through verse 21, is singular. Singular. So it's Philemon. It's always Philemon. It's Tychicus reads this, he may have lifted his eyes from time to time to look directly at his host Philemon, for these words were directly for him. And we can convey something of the effect of the singular you by adding Philemon's name in place of the word you in verses 4 through 7. Verse 4, I thank my God always making mention of you Philemon in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith which you Philemon have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. So all of a sudden, in front of the entire congregation, I don't know how big this church was, you have whomever is reading this personally addressing Philemon in front of the church that's in his house about the slave that he owns. Wow. 
That's, that's significant. What I think that does for us is it demonstrates the importance of the body of Christ, the church. Why does the writer of Hebrews say to the congregation that they are not to forsake the assembling of themselves together as is the custom of some? Why? It's because of what happens here and the priority of the church and how you and I interact with each other and how you and I protect each other and how you and I edify each other and build each other up in the faith. That's what we're doing here. Even to the point that Paul would write a letter that is read openly to a church about a particular person. Possible that Paul could have just written a side note to Philemon or taken Tychicus aside and said, hey, when you get back to Colossae, Will you tell Philemon to treat Onesimus okay? To take care of things there? To not make a scene? To not make a spectacle? To do the right thing that honors Christ? Can you do that for me, Tychicus? Will you do that? I'm sure he would have said, okay, sure, Paul. I'll do anything for you. But no, instead he writes a letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to make certain that the church also is going to learn an important lesson about the koinonia, the, the, the one another's of the faith that even reach into issues like this. That's big. So we find out here that Paul is praying for Philemon. We understand that this is very direct and personal. And there are things that Paul says about Philemon that are very important. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. This is certainly a good model for you and I to follow as we pray for each other. Do you make mention of others within the church? Thanking God for them, thanking God for people who are serving, who are making sacrifices of time and money and effort to be a part of what is going on here, to build you up and protect you in the faith. That ought to be taking place. We ought to be thanking God for each other. If Paul's doing it about Philemon, then we ought to be doing it for each other. I thank my God always. I thank my God. You may say, Pastor, what can I be thankful for? Well, Look next to you. Look across the aisle. Who's there? Be thankful. Thank God for them. Thank God for them. Making mention of you in my prayers. So Paul is making Philemon a focus in his prayers. Think of all the things that Paul had to pray about. (laughs) There's a lot. And here's Philemon in them. In verse 5, he commends Philemon because he knows there's something about him, most likely hearing this from Epaphras, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. This is an interesting passage, and we'll spend more time in it as we break down this section here. The verses 5, 6, and 7 are a little, not, I don't want to ever say it's confusing, but the structure is, is somewhat difficult in terms of interpretation, and we'll take time to unpackage them. But ultimately, the general idea being communicated by Paul is that I want you to thrive in the fellowship based upon your common faith in Jesus Christ, sharing in what is so unique about that and how you are going to deal with this particular problem is the gist of what Paul is saying. But you too ought to be, you and I should take pause to reflect upon the things that are noted about Philemon. Look what he says, because I hear of your love, your love, and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus. He loves the Lord Jesus Christ. He he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Apparently, it is evident and real. It's demonstrable. Paul says that he has heard of it, most likely, again, from Epaphras. Maybe even from Onesimus. After God saves him, Onesimus reflects back on the relationship that he had with Philemon, thinking about, you know what, that man treated me well. He didn't have to, but he did. I think this is an encouragement to us to make certain that our testimony, that our relationships are governed and driven by these type of things, that people who know us will speak of us in this manner. You're known to be a loving person. You're known to be a person who is committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's commendable. And Paul is commending Philemon in some way here by mentioning it. That's a good testimony. Philemon is being salt and light. It is evident that he's a believer. Love is a fruit of the Spirit, is it not? 
And so too should we demonstrate these things. Well, we're going to leave off there this morning because the balance here is more detailed and I want to spend more time on packaging what it is. But my hope is that by this introduction into the book of Philemon, we're going to be reminded again that our relationships that we have ought not to be dominated by wrongs that have been done, but rather than by who we are in Jesus Christ and what we have in him together in the faith. As a church, that's very important. Keep that in mind. The book of Philemon helps us with that principle. Don't lose sight of that as we work through this short little letter. Now, the presupposition, of course, is that the letter is being explained and taught to believers. The good thing for me is that I know that God has equipped you to do the things that you're called to do. I'm simply the messenger. I'm called to remind you of these things, to encourage you, to exhort you, perhaps to even rebuke you. But if you're not a believer, then these words will ring foreign to you. They'll seem absurd, pointless, baseless, offensive, rude, odd. Well, my prayer is that God will open your eyes and your ears to understand and comprehend them. And my appeal to you is simply this, call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you turned to him in faith? Are you resting in his finished work? Do you understand what it means to know what grace is and what peace is? Does Paul's salutation to you mean anything? Do the words grace mean anything to you? Do the word peace mean anything to you? Do you know what it means to be at peace with God? Because the opposite of that is not good for you. It means you will receive justice, which is going to be demonstrated by God's wrath and his right judgment of you, which will result in your eternal separation from him in the context of any peace or love. That's a reality. So I appeal to you, turn to Christ, call upon him, and he will save you. And these things, too, can be yours today. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the exhortation that we find in this little epistle, this little letter that you have kept and preserved remarkably through all of the ages, all the things that have happened in the history of mankind in the 2,000 years since this was written. It's unbelievable that we have it in Beloit, Ohio, in our lap, open before us. Thank you for that. Now, may we take it and glean from it what you have intended for us to learn. Help us to be good students of your word. And most importantly, help us to want to know it because we want to know you better and we want to love you better and live for you better. As the assembled, redeemed in Beloit, Ohio, we want to learn from this letter how we ought to be interacting with each other. What are the priorities? How we should love and live for each other, pray for each other. Lord, help us to learn these things. Help us to do them better for your glory and for your honor. We pray in Christ's name, amen. God bless you.